0: I'm saying all these words like reliable consistent authentic talented competent but what does it look like well here's what it looks like at 3 30 afternoon at power center academy when the bell rings i'm busting through the lobby teachers coming to me you got to talk to you got to talk to this kid he did this and he, i know he's playing rugby i know he was playing you got to talk to him about this okay where is he i'm finding him boom this kid's on the way out the school with his girlfriend but we got practice Whoa, 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 whoa. where are you going like, we got practice, so I'm going to McDonald's. No, 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 you're not going to McDonald's. It is just like a, uh, a battlefield for like 20 minutes after school just to get kids to show up.
1: Welcome to an army of normal folks. I'm Bill Courtney. I'm a normal guy. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm an entrepreneur. And I've been a football coach in inner city Memphis. And the last part, it unintentionally led to an Oscar for the film about our team. It's called Undefeated. I believe our country's problems will never be solved by a bunch of fancy people in nice suits talking big words that nobody understands on CNN and Fox, but rather an army of normal folks, us, just you and me deciding, hey, I can help. That's what Shane Young, the voice we just heard, has done. Shane is the co-founder of Memphis Inner City Rugby, which brought a sport that was really foreign to the inner city to 2,400 students with 100% of those students be accepted into college or the military. 60 of these students have played collegiate rugby and they help their players get more than a million dollars in scholarships. I can't wait for you to meet Shane right after these brief messages from our generous sponsors.
2: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you
1: access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. i got to tell you, I am... um I'm excited today. We've we've got a guy who, if you looked at him, you might think was on a surfboard in L.A. somewhere, and I've I've met him before. Uh, I know his heart, and I've uh, even spent some time just on the side chatting about some amazing things this guy's accomplished. Um, and uh, I think you guys are going to be absolutely floored. By Shane Young, how you doing, buddy?
0: I was honored to be here, Bill, and uh, thanks for the intro. Just super honored to, to sit down with you. <laughs> well, that's—I mean—that's
1: humbling, and thanks, um, dude. Where'd you come from? I mean, you're here in Memphis, but where'd you come from?
0: Well, I was just thinking because you, you said the surfboard, which is what the kids say about me right now. They say, uh, you know, you're like look like a surfer because uh, this this long hair. My family, which I'll get into, is from New Jersey. They haven't seen me in about six months, so they don't know I look like this. The kid, <laughs> the kids after the summer, were surprised to see me like this, and so I'm getting that a lot right now. Also, getting Ed Sheeran a lot for those. Well, of you're
1: who- you're pulling off ginger strong.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. No, no problem.
1: And the mustache <laughs> is even red. It works. I mean, you got a yeah, well, yeah. And and listen. A fat redheaded dude appreciates a good looking <laughs> ginger like you. I mean, you you keep it you 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 keep us validated out there in public.
0: Man, what an honor! I really appreciate it. And <laughs> and it's all coming to an end, unfortunately, this weekend because I have to go officiate a wedding where I, I can't I can't quite look so uh, much like this, I guess. But uh, yeah, so that'll that a lot of people will be happy about right. that. Um, but I I grew up in New Jersey, like I mentioned, and uh, my um parents and my brother that's my family i uh, have one sibling an older brother two years older than me named ryan my my mom and dad steve and donna they all live uh down in southwest florida now in the naples fort myers area um which is where we all moved together when i was in high school ended up doing the rest of high school and college in southwest florida at florida oh, so you did do the beach thing kinda. i guess i did i guess i did now it's the west coast you know gulf of mexico side uh so uh you know there's no waves over there yeah right. <laughs> it's like a it's like a big pond but uh I went to uh, you know Florida Gulf Coast University and then uh, you know graduated when I was 21 or 22 years old there and moved uh, straight to Memphis with TFA. So that's kind of my.
1: So tell me about what your uh, what your mom and dad do for a living or how- homemakers or work. What tell me about what it was like growing up in the young household.
0: Wow, my parents are great parents, man. Uh, my mom, you know, she's done a lot of different things from from social work to I think she worked in a VA growing up, you know, but then she did get to you know, raised my brother and I at home growing up while my dad was just being a maniac um, all over the place, Uh, you know, and I say that in the most endearing way possible because he was Couple of years before I was born, he was the mayor of Mine Hill, New Jersey. Of where? Uh, Mine Hill, New Jersey. Population? Uh, not not big, not big. Small town in, in northern New Jersey. I don't know the population, but you know. But he was the mayor, and and <laughs> it's amazing the stories he can show me, and even the newspaper clippings that we can see. There was like some controversy around his mayoral <laughs> candidacy and incumbency, even though he was, uh, you know, a small town. But uh, it was quite a quite a time there in the uh, late '80s. You know, after being a mayor, he got into the insurance business and did that for a lot of the nineties, you know, and then in the, in the mid and early two thousands, he was, he was always an entrepreneur, the serial entrepreneur. He was doing whatever. I mean, he was in, in insurance and then he got into some real estate and he was, we opened up, a, we, we moved to Florida, we opened up a restaurant, my mom, my brother and I, we all worked at it, diner, went out of business and so not everything worked. Right. So my dad has been, uh, you know, you can call him Dow Jones because he's been up and down in his entrepreneurial journey, his whole, you would love to meet him, Bill. Cause of your story. And, uh, so you know, that's, that's been his career. And he was also a rugby coach, you know? Um, and when we moved to Florida, my brother and I were like teenagers in the middle of high school, a lot of friends and we were playing rugby and then we, we got uprooted to Florida and we were like pissed at our dad, you know, because that he, he pulled us down there and uh, we can get into all the reasons why if you want, but he, uh, you know, what what we were trying to hold everything against him. Like, you know, these kids in Florida are so stupid, dad. And like, (laughs) you know, and like, we're just like, and then there's no rugby down here. You took away our favorite sport. I feel terrible. Right. Cause he was just being a good dad, like doing what he had to do. And then we're giving him hell. Um, But so what did he do? Starts a high school rugby team at our high school and and, and we all, and we all built it together. And so uh, I got all this experience building an organization, a small one at a high school, a rugby team, uh, because my dad was like, "Yeah, say no more." Like, did you, know? you grow
1: up playing rugby in, yeah, in New, Jersey? New Jersey?
0: Yeah, exactly. And then we moved to Florida, and there was no youth rugby. It wasn't like you know, it's 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 a Eurocentric. It's not a, it's not popular here in America, so. Don't find it everywhere.
1: How did your dad coach rugby? Did he play when he was younger?
0: <laughs> he played, yeah, in New Jersey, that you know, the Morris Lions, old school. Yeah, you know, he was playing in the seventies and eighties. Um, you know, back when it was r- nobody super, was super playing irrelevant. rugby right. in the
1: United States. He was, he was a rugby
0: pioneer. You yeah. Know? So yeah, he played.
1: He really is an entrepreneur in <laughs> sports and <laughs> politics and yeah. so tell me about the diner. That's was that in Florida? Yeah, that was in Florida. I, I mean, I'm envisioning like alice and mel in the back and kiss my grits and all that is that what we're talking about here (laughs) uh
0: it's 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 a lot even funnier than that i mean it's called park place diner and we opened it up being from new jersey you know we loved a a diner like well that's that's
1: a new that's a northeast thing
0: exactly not so much in florida like give me the bagel give me the breakfast at dinner like you know the diner and so we opened a park place diner with that you know in mind and um you know, um, it was in this plaza. You know, next to a grocery store, and my brother and I, and all of our rugby teammates, the teenagers that we were recruiting and and training in rugby, and that we were playing, we were the servers. We were the we were the busters, and and we were often the kitchen staff. And I'll tell you, you know, we my my parents only now have started to learn this. Man, we'd come in for those Sunday, you know, Sunday after church breakfast crowd. That's the diner's busiest day. Me and my buddies in high school were not up to all all good stuff, and we'd come in like. You know, like we had Saturday night, a lot of fun, you know, together after our, after our rugby games, you know, underage and everything. So not, not proud of that necessarily. We'd come into the diner the next day and and we'd deliver, you know, we would do a good job, but my goodness, we were, we were not feeling good those days. Um, but the diner, you know, it was, it was a, it was in a weird plaza. It didn't get a lot of business. It turned out the guy we hired to manage it started, you know, stealing some cash and booze, a little embezzlement here and there, the food, the food industry is brutal And so this thing was closed after a year and a half, I think it was. And uh, it costed my dad, you know, a good amount of money to get into that industry. And so that's one of those, you know, when I talk about Dow Jones, he was up and down. That was one of the downs. That
1: was one of the downs. So um, fair to say that there were good years and bad years, but you didn't grow up with a silver spoon in your mouth if you're working in a diner. I mean, your parents are middle, upper middle class folks that are raising two kids and that's how you grew up.
0: It's funny. And and my, my family's going to listen to this and we're going to have a fun conversation and reflection of what, what they're going to hear me say right now, because yeah, we, we're we a middle-class family for sure. Now, when I grew up in New Jersey, I had, the, I, I, t- I had this little complex because as a kid, some, some of the kids I was friends with would say I was a rich kid. And that is because my dad crushed it in the insurance industry after he was the mayor of mine Hill and, you know, bought a big house in cash. And we lived in a nice area. Now, that When I talk about the Dow Jones, that was a major up. And then there was a lot of years where, you know, sitting on that, leveraging that, not everything was like, you know, cash flow. And so, <laughs> and so the time we got to Florida, you know, we felt very middle-class and I, I had pretty much shaken that rich kid complex by then. And I think our, our life is middle-class people. We're we're an army of normal folks at the young Residence. Got it.
1: So you, uh, I guess Florida grows on you cause you go to college there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And why, where, what was it called? Florida Gulf Coast University, Fort Myers, Florida. I, yep. I, I've seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, By the way, isn't there a, like a, a uh, resort area south of Fort Myers, about 45 minutes?
0: Uh, well, that's, that's Naples, Florida, right? And so that, that's one but of there's the, there's
1: even like an island.
0: Marco Island,
1: Marco Island. Yeah. I got to tell you a quick story about where you're, where you I know a lot about school. Marco. Yeah. Well, I almost know nothing about it, except it's nice, but I flew, Lisa and I flew to Fort Myers, mm-hmm. rent a car, drove to, rented a, uh, fortunately, all they had was a Suburban, right. and so we in, drove a Suburban down, and the reason we were there is I did a speech, I had a keynote for Firestone, and we, I had to show up, uh, part of the contract was I showed up a day early, so I was there the day early, and, um... The week before, they were talking about this weird sickness people were getting in New York City. Uh, And by the time we flew to Fort Myers, drove to, uh, what's that island called? Marco. Marco Island, did my speech. After the speech was over, it was a dinner speech, went back to our room, and at 9.30 is when the world changed.
0: You're talking about like April 20-something, 2020.
1: It's exactly when it was. And um, Lisa and I looked at each other. and We were to fly out the next day on Delta. And it went from in a couple-week of week period from when we left, a few people in New York getting this weird illness they couldn't figure out to a full-blown pandemic. And everybody was sick. And I had friends in Memphis sick and everything else. And Lisa and I said, I don't – we didn't know. Nobody knew back then, right? Right. So I didn't. I just said I'm not flying on. A, I'm not getting on the Delta plane going to Atlanta, running through that big airport with all those people right, running the back. Biggest. We didn't know if if you got this, it was a death sentence. I mean, nobody knew for sure back then. So I don't know how far of a drive it is from that island to Memphis. Sixteen hours. Okay, so it was a twenty-one hour drive for us because as we're advancing, we're getting calls telling us that nobody has Lysol or toilet paper anymore so from that island of memphis every single exit that i had a walmart or a target or a dollar up. general we stopped <laughs> by the time we got to memphis we had a suburban full of rented suburban that i had to turn back into memphis changed all that of lysol toilet paper and bottled oh water loaded to the hilt
0: this is pre-masked too yeah, right. All, like you're all, not you're not bringing back masks, so that wasn't a thing yet.
1: Oh, that's right. All of it. And um, then, as in shortly after, like a few days after, is when everybody was talking about these toilet paper hoarders being the scourge of the earth, <laughs> and the lysol hoarders being awful, and I felt bad, so then I brought most of that stuff to the office and gave it away to my employees. Nice. <laughs> oh my that, God. but that's my Fort Myers experience. I've been there for a day and a half and drove back
0: well you can have a you, you can make a sub podcast where you just have people on for one minute give me your one minute where were you when you knew the world changed right that's it I, wouldn't that be a f- funny one uh yeah just, it's just true people's well, little sound bites on i was at a restaurant and i got a phone i saw the nba game get shut you at know, whatever it was
1: <laughs> i was uh i was in your old hometown for yes, high school were. so you go to college are you going there What what's your degree in what are you doing
0: well, so barely got into college. I was a terrible student, right? When I told you about my Saturday night behavior, that kind of tracked to my like achievement in college, in, in high school, like 2.8 GPA, so bad at math, good, good writing, but writing didn't count on the, on the SC, whatever it was, ACT, SAT back then. And, um. So I got I got punished for my math, but I didn't get rewarded for my writing. It didn't account for this admission process. So I, my brother goes to Florida State in Tallahassee. Pretty tough to get into some of these bigger Florida schools, especially UF. Florida's like an Ivy League in terms of like admissions, like standards. It's, it's crazy. Tough. It it's is a like North Carolina. So I'm thinking I can't get into UF for sure. But I drive to Florida State six hours away and I'm going to admissions. I'm saying, hey, I'm Shane. I know I don't have this and that, but I can be, you know, and it doesn't work. And I go I think to, if you
1: I, had that haircut, that'd let you in. <laughs> it
0: might. <laughs> and so I, I go to FAU, USF, UCF. I'm talking about Boca Raton, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, Tampa, just trying to get into a school in Florida, because that's the whole reason we moved down there was the Florida Bright Future Scholarship. You know, it's like a low-hanging fruit opportunity for students to get state fund, you know, you know, to get go to school affordably. That's why we went. And uh, I didn't get in anywhere. Um, and I even got denied by Florida Gulf Coast, which had the lowest standards. So I was like, it was my nightmare because of social pressure that I was going to have to tell my friends I was going to community college, but that was what I was facing until I wrote an appeal letter to Florida Gulf Coast University and basically pled my case and wow, it worked. So I got into the lowest standard state university in Florida I went there and then I majored in uh, political science because you don't have to take math too much when you do that. <laughs> and did you, was rugby going on then? No. So I played uh, three years for the Naples Hammerheads, a men's team. I was like the young guy on the team. It's a little bit of an older demographic. By the time I was a senior at the college, I had recruited enough of my buddies to go play for the men's team that we had enough to make our own college team. So I started the Florida Gulf Coast University men's rugby team my senior year, played and coached and captained and, you know, administered the whole operation for one year before I moved to Memphis.
1: Um, You graduate and decide you're going to be a teacher. Is that was that the plan?
0: Well, so in the, in the, my last semester of college, that spring, I was looking at the military, honestly. Um, and you know, that actually made my, made my folks like, ah, oh, man, you might go like, they, they didn't love that, you know? Um, but I was just looking to, I was looking to serve and I was looking to use my degree. Like I spent four years getting a degree. I barely got into college. I wanted my next thing to to require a degree. I didn't really care what it was. Um I I had served tables my whole, you know, high school. And yeah, college. You weren't
1: opening another diner.
0: No, and, and I and I about even after the diner, I worked at restaurants my whole life and I was like ready to do something that required a degree. I had done I had done all these other jobs for so long, you know, bartending, golf course, greenhouse, farming, uh, restaurant, whatever. Sounds
1: like you got some of your dad in you, Shane. <laughs> yeah,
0: I guess I was doing doing everything. And I wasn't a broke college kid because i worked three jobs during college so you know I, I was busy all the time but anyway i wanted to serve i wanted to use my degree so i was applying to the, i was doing i was doing military recruitment maybe i can come in as an officer and then i you know then i started looking at peace corps you know like international like service assignments and then i got turned on to uh, teach for america and in my mind i was like oh man like we have so many issues in america why would i outsource myself to you know namibia with the Peace Corps to go build a a well where surely that's an awesome service to do. And those people need that. And that service is valid. But I was like, what if I just stay in the States, you know, and try to invest and serve here. I thought Teach for America was a really cool way to do that. So So I don't
1: don't know how, I, I, for, for those who don't know all about Teach for America or maybe heard of it or not heard at all, Teach for America is a bunch of young college grads going into typically inner city situations or underserved schools whether they're inner city urban or suburban or rural or whatever and they're giving two or three years of their first professional lives out of college to teach yeah and 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 there's a community of these young people all over the place doing that now some do their two or three years and move on to what they're degreed to do or go to graduate school and become accounts, whatever. Some end up saying this is for me and stay as, as a teacher. What I don't know is do you choose where you go or does Teach for America assign you a it, city?
0: It, oh, oh, in, the, in terms of the city, um, it's changed since I applied. I don't know exactly how it is now. I know it's different. So I'll just give you what I do know, which is how it was when I applied, which is that when you apply, you rank their cities, uh, not all of them. You, you, you pick like a top five and like, I would like to go to these five if possible. And then you pick like two that you, you wouldn't go to if you were accepted. And this is, this is a funny story I've, t- I've told to a lot of people. Um, so some, some of the listeners that are here because they know me will, will, will know that I picked Memphis cause I was just in my college dorm, you know, applying late at night. And I, I looked at Memphis, Tennessee, and I thought Tennessee mountains. Oh, I love mountains. I, I don't, I don't get. I don't get mountains. <laughs> that's the other end of the state, bro. I know, I know. We're the delta. I know. But I'm an East Coast kid, and like I just didn't know better. And I had been to like Dollywood growing up on like a vacation. So I'm like thinking about Knoxville. Thinking about I'm thinking about mountains, and I wanted mountains. And um so and I got sat down on the mud. so I put, yeah, so I put Memphis, <laughs> and uh, that's all I got. That's here.
1: funny because uh, you know I, y'all all show up with. uh white shirts on and black ties because that almost sounds like you're doing the Mormon thing where they, where they, you get, you get told
0: where you're going and you roll. Yeah, pretty much. And, and I actually, I need to, I need to interrupt your flow of questions for a second because, um, I was telling somebody I was, oh, they're, your pop- there's no flow. No flow. Okay, I'm making I this it. up as a go. <laughs> always do. Well, my, I'm turning a question back around to you because you didn't you Um, we got, when we were coming into the city as transplants, like I got set up to have dinner with like Joe Birch. It was like, you know, you know, from the, Joe Birch, great guy. Yeah. I love him. And, um, it was just, uh, you know, us like 22, 23 year olds just coming to the city. It was like teach for America's attempt to engage us in local people. I I think, and somebody told me that you sat down with a T with a, with a, with a little cohort of teach for America people circle 11 years ago, maybe. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. So, so you sat down with Andrea Wenzitz, who is now the co-executive director of, uh, of Memphis Inner City Rugby and was a 2012 Teacher America member with me and my co-founder. Are you so,
1: kidding? Yeah. Yeah. And now, a few messages from our generous sponsors, but first, um, giving a shout out to my boy Badger. Badger is a uh member of the army who emailed me and recommended that we set up a telephone number where you can leave voicemails with feedback about our movement and podcast. Uh, We've gotten a a ton of emails and we really appreciate them, but some people have a hard time when they're driving around or uh, when they're engaged in something and they want to leave a quick voicemail about the feedback about our movement and our podcast, how an episode touched or inspired you or take action or even story ideas, pretty much anything else as long as it's not weird or creepy. So we thought it was an awesome idea. So Badger... This is for you and anyone else who wants to reach out to us through phone um, rather than email. The telephone number is 901-352-1366. Call us. Leave a voicemail about your ideas. Leave a voicemail about anything as it pertains to the Army, and we will get it, and we will respond. We'll be right back. We now return to me asking
0: Shane where he taught in Memphis. Goodly Elementary, now known as Parkway Village Elementary. I was teaching 3rd grade ESL. 3rd grade what? ESL, English as a second language. What does that mean? It means I was teaching basic English but to all Mexican, Guatemalan and Honduran students, you know, mostly the, the Are the you s- bilingual? No, uh, How no. How in
1: goodness name does that work?
0: I had a pretty strong background in Spanish uh, just from the academic side, but I also, I worked in a lot of restaurants speaking a lot of, you know, Spanish with people. I, I you know, dated a Colombian girl for like five years and with with her family a lot. So I had enough of a background to make it work. And boy, after teaching for three years in that community and becoming really engaged in that, like, you know, Latino community and in that pocket of Hickory Hill, you know, Southeast Memphis. I was almost fluent by the end of it. What's
1: the demographics of an area like
0: that? Well, it, it's it's interesting pockets, you know, of demographics, and because as we know, like Memphis, you know, the the Latin population isn't isn't huge and doesn't compare, of course, to the black and white population. But there are pockets where it's like super concentrated, and that's one of them in Hickory Hill. That's why if you go over there, I think it's similar on Summer Avenue. People say, "Oh, there's amazing like Mexican restaurants all down Nutbush, Summer Avenue." Same way, yeah, but exactly, and that's what Kingsbury is actually where we started the first Memphis Intercity Rugby Program had a heavy Latin population, and that's why you see the, you know a lot of that over there, and similar uh, in in Hickory Hill. And so I think the school was like 40, 60, you know, African American and, and, and Latino. How many so, white folks? Uh I think there there were maybe only one or two in the whole school. Asians? Um about one or two, maybe, maybe zero Asians actually in that so in that school.
1: It was it was that's the demographics. And I would say lower middle income. Definitely. Definitely.
0: Yeah. I, I and that and that's Teach for America. They, they won't send you to White Station. They can't. Like, that's against their policies. Like White, White Station being a more affluent area. You're there to serve,
1: right? You're, you're there to serve, meaning you're going into lower income. Right. Situation. Struggling schools. But you income. know that going in. Absolutely, yeah. And you're excited about that because it's an opportunity to, to serve. Yeah. So how long do you teach and teach for America before you side? I want to start teaching some of
0: these people rugby uh like negative one week <laughs> because <laughs> because uh, <laughs> all right because during institute i had I met devin o'brien who's the co-founder of memphis InterCity city rugby and i only met him on a facebook page where te- it's a little group where teach for america people were starting to coordinate say who hey, who's living in midday who's living here can we be roommates Because
1: yeah, you guys are looking for roommates and friends and, and something or something
0: and trying to orient with like people are getting hired at schools and others like didn't get hired yet. I haven't even interviewed anywhere yet. You got hired already. You're at a charter school. What's a charter school versus, you know, Memphis city schools. It was all that chaos on these groups. And I saw that his profile picture was a rugby team. And I messaged him and just said, Oh man, I see you play rugby. Like we should toss the ball around. And me and Devin go back to that thread and screenshots of it periodically just to go, wow, like, look at, look at what we did after just a little bit of a, a messaging of each other. So we decided really quickly to start a high school boys' rugby team at the school he got placed at, which was Kingsbury High School. Okay. So for those who are listening,
1: Kingsbury High School is a school that's been a Memphis school for years and years and years and years. And I would say in the sixties it was a middle income, blue collar, heavily white school that then transitioned during busing into a very diverse school uh, that was probably 50-50 black and white, no Hispanics. And then over the course of time, it it became uh, a really heavily black school. And then that neighborhood started morphing into a really heavy Latino community. And now the school is, I don't know what percent, but very heavy Latino, isn't
0: it? Very heavy. It's probably some something similar to what like my good elementary was. Even though it's other sides of town, it's 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 similar makeup. I so
1: sixty percent Hispanic, forty percent black,
0: or or the opposite. I'm honestly somewhere not, I'm honestly in there, not but sure. yeah.
1: But that's it, yeah. and that is one of the areas of the city that have been particularly hit hard um, financially. And there's poverty, and there's uh, disenfranchisement, and all you have to do is drive up and down the streets of the neighborhoods around around Kingsbury and, frankly, the larger avenues around Kingsbury where you see all the major retailers have moved out and have been replaced by um, either nothing or, you know, tire stores or whatever. I mean, is that
0: right? Yeah, yeah, and especially back, back then, you know, 11 years ago now, there was not much in that community, and um, I think since then, it's, it's amazing. They've invet- made a, a great investment in, like, Geisman Park, which is, like, a big central kind of trademark area of, of Nutbush, and I think that's made a big difference. Uh, but we used to practice at Geisman Park before any of that happened, and, yeah, there was, you know, t- t- tough tough neighborhood. Definitely. Tough
1: neighborhood. Yeah. So, you're going to start rugby in the inner city of Memphis, a town you know nobody, that you just got to, and is why?
0: Why did we start that? Why do we? Why well, did we have- no?
1: Yeah, but not why did you start it when you and when you were talking about it? I mean, what was the purpose in starting a rugby team in the inner city? Why would you? I I, I listen. I get. Okay, I'm gonna go coach baseball. I'm gonna coach basketball. I'm gonna coach football. I'm gonna coach something that people know or soccer that people know. Exist. Yep. But when you're saying coaching rugby, you're also basically saying, "I'm going to teach an entire community about sport they probably never even seen of." And this football that you guys use is like overweight.
0: Yep. Yep. So a a couple things, you know, as we're transitioning into Memphis and learning about the city and learning about the economics and you know the the lack of resources and different things like that. Where you know, we're getting fired up to go make a difference. And that's part of the design of, you know, getting a bunch of young people, you know, in to teach for America, you're trying to educate them, make them part of the mission, you know, make, make a bunch, make an army of mission aligned people to go you know, make a difference in these schools. And so I'm learning all these things and I'm getting mad. I'm getting mad at poverty. You know, I'm starting to get mad that children don't have a choice whether they're born into poverty or not. And I'm noticing, I'm noticing things about my own life. I'm starting to learn a lot as a young man and I'm picturing myself in England at age 19, playing for the USA under 19 rugby team. You know, uh, I, I I was, a, I was a pretty good player, um, but when we went over there, we got beat a hundred to zero against, <laughs> against. Uh, Did you really? Uh, not, not against England, against Leeds Academy, against Leicester Academy, you know, teams that are good in England, but those kids aren't on their national team. They're hoping to get there. We were all on our national team. And y'all get spiked getting literally a hundred 100 to nothing, zero. And most of those kids on the team looked like me, white kids, who had enough access, proximity, funding, opportunity, relationships, network to get to the rugby camp, to get noticed by Sean O'Leary, to get noticed by Paul. Uh, I'm 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 name dropping old USA rugby coaches now who, you know, helped me get there and I'm grateful, but we got beat hundred to zero. And so I'm recognizing and reflecting on my own history. I am learning all these things about poverty in Memphis and I'm getting ready to go become an educator and I have all this experience now coaching rugby. Remember, we founded our own high school team. I founded my own college team. Now Your I'm,
1: dad started a team in high school. My dad
0: is a serial entrepreneur and a great leader, and I've grown up with all that. And now I'm coming in, and I'm like, I know how to start a rugby team. And boy, would it be awesome to teach our kids who have such little opportunity a new game and go kick the out of some of these other rugby teams, which the only other rugby teams within 1,000 miles of Memphis are usually, you know the opposite demographic from affluent areas right white private schools you know kids who are paying to play with two married parents coming to the game with food and drinks for the coach what do you need can i get anybody a ride home all the resources you know you could ever ask for i'm like what if we could do it from the bottom up with our kids love on them surround them with resources great coaching inspire them they're gonna love this game i already know that once they get good at it boy we have some opportunity And I I had little visions and dreams of like what was possible for the like, you know, macro impact and where we've gotten to now. But it was more so about just can we do it? I only thought I'd be here two years, you know, because that's how the Teach for America program is designed. So
1: I assume you have a sign up meeting with parents and everything.
0: Not even. We We just asked the principal of Kingsbury, hey, you know, uh, it's, it's just funny because we were so young. And it was like a you know, skinny old Devin O'Brien who you know graduated from an elite Northeastern school and he's down here. You know, he tells it. He tells a hilarious story about how his job on day one at Kingsbury was to kind of, you know, um, tell kids to, you know, tuck in their shirt and like be the uniform standard person on their way into the school. And he's like 160 pounds straight out of college, like white guy from from New York. And he just tells a funny story about that. So even going to the principal's office, you know, as Devin, it's like, hey, I, I work here. Um, uh, I'm <laughs> not wonder- a student. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if we can put a rugby announcement on the uh, on the afternoon announcements, if I can hang these flyers up and if we can host the interest meeting in my classroom for kids after school. So it wasn't parents at first. It was just kids, you know, seeing who would come and, and you know, sign up. Yeah. And? And I, it was like, you know, 25 kids, I think, showed up. And um, we we put on a rugby video. We tried to get them excited about practice. I think we already had it scheduled. We said, hey, Geisman Park, next week, we're going to meet in the lobby. We're going to be walking across Macon Road to Geisman Park. Bring your cleats. Bring your this. And then we learned really fast, falling backwards into all these services we provide now. Of course, nobody's got cleats. Have I was just kids- trying to say, bring your cleats. Right, right. What so cleats? We, we were learning about our own privilege and all these things like along the way. We'll be right back.
1: and um so what does the first rugby practice look like in this area i i'm you know i'm i'm envisioning the reverse of that show about the guy who went to coach soccer in uh in england uh what is that thing called alex ted lasso ted oh, lasso, ted lasso. <laughs> i'm thinking ted lasso in reverse <laughs> i mean just a complete disaster frankly
0: I mean, it, well, Devin and I were, we were good. We were good at what we were doing. You know, Devin was a great leader and he, and he would, we immediately instituted like, you know, things about study hall before practice. And we're going to be checking your grades and you got to be doing this. That was already ingrained in like what we thought was important. And Devin was so good at holding that standards. And he was the one in the school. Remember I had to speed across town. Once yeah, the Bell you're at you're
1: elementary school,
0: right? So I'm speeding across town. Every day after school to get there to support Devin, be in the classroom, welcome to Geisman, be at practice, and I'm like a really experienced rugby coach. I'm 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 good. Like I'm I don't. It's not really awkward. It's not clunky to get started. Like I'm working them, and Devin's really good. I'm the other end of it, you know, and a good rugby coach, and he had experience playing in college too. So no, it wasn't as. Uh, it was just funny the way you know we would I'm just trying to kids. imagine
1: the dude looking at the ball the first time.
0: Oh well, yeah, you you would love it because you know you're a football you know coach and, and a player. Uh, in rugby, you can't block. In, in fact, if if you have the ball, I need to go get behind you so that I'm an option for you to pass it to. So I can't block for you because a I need to be behind you to catch the ball, and b it's against the rules. And that's the first thing the Kingsbury kids wanted to do is like someone's got the rock. I'm running out to crack to crack block, you know. <laughs> so that kind of stuff you would see, and it's just funny, you know. And um, they can't believe it's no pads, you know. You no? and the parents can't believe it's no pads because it's such it's football culture. They have no idea what this is, you know.
1: Well, I, I would imagine that. At first, parents were like, "I don't know about this." I, I interviewed a guy named R. Shea Cooper, yes, and from West Side Chicago, who was on the first All Black Row team, and since has started all these All Black Row teams, and it- it's an amazing story. Listen to the podcast. Yeah, uh, we're not going to redo the R. Shea Cooper podcast here, but one of the things that he said is that first day of signups was a disaster the second day of signups they got people to come listen because they gave away free pizza yeah but amongst the students unbeknownst to the coaches they were all talking about this is a white sport yeah there's something black people don't do what are we doing with this and i wondered if you had to to bridge some social thoughts 100%. about rugby
0: 100 percent, and it was funny because um the first group we got out for that first like week or two. And by the way, yeah.
1: I-, I need to be careful with what I just said. I don't think there's any such thing as a racial sport of any kind. I mean, I guess ping pong is supposed to be an Asian sport, but I love ping pong. And I guess rowing is dominated by white people. So they call it a white sport, but lo and behold, when black people get involved, they can do pretty well at it. And, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm repeating what was said i personally recoil at the notion that anything is a white black asian latino sport but unfortunately that's ingrained in societal preconceived notion
0: well and it's it's about access why why don't you see a lot of people of color playing lacrosse well it's because lacrosse exists in elite communities where you know, in colleges where you have to have a lot of money. You know how much it costs to play youth lacrosse? It's yeah. costs a lot of money. A lot. And so it is it is almost um an institution that is exclusive to, you know, those with resources. And so I think that, you know, there's nothing wrong with naming that. I think that's, that's totally true. And rugby's like that too, to a lesser degree. And we're trying to change that, you know, at Memphis Intercity. Rugby. But
1: I, I'm just saying where the, were the kids and parents kind of looking at you crooked a little. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so, and that's what I was gonna say. Like the, the first like 20 kids that came out, they were at that interest meeting at the first practice, second practice. We didn't have, like, we were wondering if we'd get like some superstar athlete to come out, you know, cause Kingsbury certainly had some of them on the soccer team, the football team, the basketball team. There was some really, it's a big school, thousands of kids, lots of potential. And uh we didn't really get any any big time athletes. So we were kind of, you know, working through practice slowly, building the skills, a lot of drop balls and things like that. And I didn't get too much of those comments. But a couple of weeks later, you know, Jakari a- and uh Chris McKnight show up and Anthony show up and they've they've played football, they've been in the weight room, and they are the kind of athletes that could probably go D1 in something if they, you know, really applied themselves to it and, and pursued it all the way. And then we start cooking, and that's when you start getting some of the comments, like just about. You know, them asking about our background growing up and the teams they're going to play against if if they're all white. You know, if we're going to be playing against other white teams, what what other schools have this? You know, that's that's one thing, one thing they want to know. What other schools have this? And none of them did in, in our community. And so that that's why shortly after our first two months uh, having the team at Kingsbury, I broke off from Devon and formed our first other team. And that was at Power Center Academy, a charter school closer to where I was teaching. And then, boom, now we had two two boys teams that could play against each other. Have did you ever hear the term church school? Yeah, yes. So, when
1: I was at Manassas, I heard that and I think it's valuable to share the church school term and vernacular with our um with our guests. We were my second year at Manassas, I was tired of playing what's called pay games where you go to a much 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 bigger higher resource school they pay you three thousand dollars and you're their homecoming queen and unfortunately the manassas i got to that's the only way they could afford the little bit of equipment stuff they had so we said we're going to raise the money and we're going to start paying schools our own size and build up Mm -hmm. and you know six seven years later we were paying against the teams that used to pay us to come be beat and whooping on that butt so yeah beautiful but (laughs) You had to start somewhere and constantly, I'm going to say this because this is what it was, the athletic department was pimping its football team out to get enough money to pay for uniforms and stuff. Right. And right. it's and the kids are not unaware.
0: Right. Definitely not. And
1: what makes you think you're ever going to be the top-notch, highly succeeding football team when the very school you play for is using you to make money. They know it, right? Right. So we interrupted that by raising enough money and then leveling our schedule so we didn't have those kind of games and eventually building back up and play those games again, but not for money, yep. but to compete. Yeah. But we had to start somewhere. So that second year, and we scheduled games with some smaller private schools out and around – the county, I'm not going to name any of them because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And when the schedule came out, some kids came to me and said, Coach Bill, we're going to play at these church schools. And I said, <laughs> what? And they said, you know, the church school. Saint this, yep. Saint that. Yep. First assembly this. This of God school. And... It it just struck me crazy that what I would call private or parochial schools, the inner city kids called church schools. So I went to the principal that year, who was a great guy, Joe Davis. Uh, he was there the first two years, and I told him about that, and he said, "I guess it's time." And I, he and I had had a lot of really good conversations. He said, "I guess it's time for me to give you a history lesson," and I'm like, "Yes, sir," and he said you know what happened on April 4th, 1968 in this town, right? I said, yes, sir. Martin Luther King was shot, killed, and assassinated here. He said, right. And he said, you know what happened after that, right? And I said, riots. He said, after that. I said, um, busing. He said, right. And he said, uh, which coincided with white flight. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you need to go look up the charter dates of the vast majority of all of these schools. So I did.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: 71, 72. Yep. All the churches out in the suburbs started schools as safe harbor for their white students from busing and black schools. Now, that is an uncomfortable truth. Yep. But it is truth that the reality is the vast majority of these private schools were started by white churches in the suburbs. And as a result, from the early 70s inside the black community, these schools are known as
0: church schools. Ah, wow. That is super interesting. It is also church
1: super school. divisive. The one day in the United States that we should be the most joined would be Sunday. And it is the most segregated day on the planet.
0: Oh, absolutely. Especially in Memphis. And it
1: existed not only on Sundays, but every day as a result of quote church schools. Yeah. Look up their charters, it'll shock you. Yeah. So when they said that church school thing, I thought, wow. And and I don't know if they ever voiced it to you, but I gotta believe that when you started playing matches with these kids from Power Academy in Kingsbury. They knew that they were going to play church schools.
0: 100%. 100%. They knew that.
1: We'll be right back.
0: My name is Ariel. I
2: moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22.
3: It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive
2: adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.
1: So, first match you played, who was it against?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, Do you remember? It was against each other. Uh, I don't know. First match oh, outside of the each other. Oh, I think against Christian Brothers High
1: School. Holy smokes. Yeah. Right. For people who don't know this, Christian Brothers is in the largest classification in the state of Tennessee. I think they have 2,500 students, 2,000 students, 100% boys multi 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 tens of millions of dollars facility and field and wait it's as nice as it gets and you could it's one of the schools in memphis you could plop down in texas and the facilities and the kids there could compete That's on true. that
0: level it is an incredible yeah the campus is- and you show
1: up to your yeah. first how'd that
0: go uh, I, we got our butts kicked. Was it a hundred to nothing? Uh, something around there. I think more like sixty-five to three or something like that. Well, then um, uh, they outperformed your national team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And um, and this is where so much learning started because our kids were feeling out contact, tackling the rules, the referee. And so were our parents. And, you know, when our parents could make, make it to the game, they wanted to see our kids win. And it wasn't happening at first. It definitely wasn't happening. We had so much catch up to do. We don't have the weight room. We've never played rugby. There's no middle school feeder Your team. kids don't even understand the, the, the intricacies. Really. Exactly. Exactly. But they're competitive, too, and they want to win. And so for for Devin and I as coaches, it became such a exercise of healing, therapy, patience, sportsmanship and keeping our kids emotionally regulated after they were getting their butts kicked mm. at a sport in a sport they didn't really love yet you know it was super super challenge in leadership and and yet we, we were able to pull it off and and the kids god bless them were so resilient but they were figuring it out and and they weren't sure sometimes whether that tackle was extracurricular or whether you were supposed to ruck me like that and is this a fight i'm having this i'm <laughs> I'm having this <laughs> – and they have these trauma responses, and they're not sure. And then the referee's blowing the whistle, and then boom, we're back 10 again. And then another penalty. I don't even know what happened there. Is this ref, – that ref's white. Is he – are they all – you see where I'm going. And our parents too. What does that whistle mean? Why are our kids constantly getting penalty These things. And, and our kids were making a lot of mistakes. They are committing a lot of penalties. They were learning the game. So it was a challenge for everyone involved, opposing coaches, referees, us, our kids, our parents, to – grit through some of those first you know games and misunderstandings and it was a difficult difficult time but um it's fun too but they kept coming back They kept coming back yeah i
1: have always said that the kids at manassas kept coming back because they found an opportunity to be part of one positive thing in a very very desperate life situation and area did you find that to be the case
0: Yeah. Positive thing. And, and also I just think it's so important that, that the, the person, the leader, the coach, you know, the mentor is like in in Memphis, we talk about, Oh, we need more mentors. We need more mentors. Do we, do we? Cause, cause what if somebody that's not
1: just Memphis, that's everywhere.
0: Well, that's everywhere. But, but I'm saying like, sure. Mentors are cool, but like, we need people who are competent, dedicated, consistent, predictable, human in touch, ready, ready to really invest in kids. And when you say, Hey, it was something positive for them. I would argue that they were coming back because of you coach. And, and I think that our kids were coming back because they saw how genuine and dedicated, committed, consistent, reliable, um, and resourceful and helpful that Devin and I were, you know, with those first two teams. I don't think they loved the game right away. I don't think it was enough.
1: I've always said that coaches uh, that players win games and coaches win players.
0: Fair. Yeah, totally fair. Well, that's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah,
1: is that you won't win any games, but you're trying to win your kids.
0: Right, and and, and what does that look like? Just any, anyone who's listening out there, who's like a, a in sports based youth development, or like a teacher or a coach, like you know, you might be wondering what what when I'm saying all these words like reliable, consistent, authentic, talented, competent. But what does it look like? Well, here's what it looks like at three thirty afternoon at Power Center Academy when the bell rings. I'm busting through the lobby going at teachers coming to me. You got to talk to, you got to talk to this kid. He did this and he, I know he's playing rugby. I know he was playing. You got to talk to him about this. Okay. Where is he? I'm finding him. Boom. This kid's on the way out to the school with his girlfriend, but we got practice. Whoa, 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 where are you going? Like we got practice. So I'm going to McDonald's. No, 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 you're not going to McDonald's. You know what I mean? Like, it is just like a, uh, a battlefield for like 20 minutes after school, just to get kids to show up. Cause like, they're no, not,
1: you're rounding up the doggies. Right, I know exactly right, what it's like. Right.
0: And then I'm taking, you know, I got Sam cause he's a good leader and he loves, he already loves the game. So he's into it. So he's, he's interested in this too. So I'm like, Sam, go, go down to the 10th grade hallway, round them up. Do not let them leave that hallway. Tell them they got to get changed. They're coming to practice. Boom. I got ninth grade and, you know, and so it's just, that's what it looks like, you know, for those wondering what, what I mean when I say all these buzzwords about oh. what, what keeps kids coming back
1: all for the payoff of then getting you to spend two two and a half hours working for free to teach kids something <laughs>
0: right, right, right. Well, that's it right yeah, and, th- and then drive them all home by the way <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> and yeah. then
1: somehow get everybody home safely yeah, yeah yeah well tell me about year two
0: year two yeah um so it was really cool because, and this is where you start to see Memphis inner city rugby as an organization, as an institution come to life. Well, and
1: at this point you didn't really have Memphis city rugby. We, you were, you were messing with two groups of kids as teams.
0: Once we got started with the first practice we did make like a social media page. We did call it Memphis inner city rugby. And my ex-girlfriend did make us a logo. So we did have um, that, but we didn't have anything else. And so in year two, we started to engage, uh, Two of now my best friends, and they're still involved in MICR, Andres Lopez, another Teach for America 2012 guy who we got to know well, who had a little rugby background graduating from UNC in Chapel Hill. And he was teaching at a school in, in, in Westwood called Freedom Prep, another charter school. And we started talking, man, what if, you see what we're doing at Kingsbury and PCA. Like what, if, like, what if you added a boys team to the mix? And I don't know how we were able to convince Andres to do it. And at the same time, we had Brad Trotter who didn't do Teach for America in Memphis, but he did in Chicago. And then he was down in Memphis because his wife was becoming a doctor at UTHSC. And Brad became an administrator at Soulsville in South City, charter school there. And so we're like getting Andres and Brad on board. And they do come on board and they start a boys team at Soulsville. And Andres starts a boys team at at Freedom Prep.
1: So all of a sudden from nothing becomes not a team, but a league.
0: Now we have four boys teams in this demographic under the realm of Memphis Inner City Rugby under very talented coaches brad and andres world class
1: one hundred percent minority
0: uh we had we had one i remember i remember Jaden lingerfeld um was uh shout out Jaden he was on my team he was a a white white guy and um i think uh and, and some on Kingsbury year one, but other than that yeah not 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 really no, yeah one hundred percent minority, with the exception of a few, but yeah, brad and andres uh and that's why you know i I don't get too crazy about thinking about how we started all this, but I do think man. Andres, North Carolina, Brad, Chicago, Devon, New York, me, New Jersey, college at all different places, teach for America randomly, didn't know each other. And then, oh, by the way, we all have a rugby background, which is already like a, you know what I mean? Like, you don't I mean? Meet-
1: he- here's the thing that I really want people to, to not miss. You're not from Memphis and neither are these guys. None of them. You don't, you don't know the power brokers. You don't know the administrators. You don't know the people to help you with fields. You don't know the people to go ask for for donations for resources. You don't know any of that. Here's what you know. You love rugby. You have a passion for it and service. And I have said a hundred times, the magic happens when a discipline and a passion exist and it meets an opportunity. When you have a discipline or ability to do something, a passion for it, and you see the opportunity to employ that discipline and passion in something that can make a difference. Yep. And if we're talking about an army of normal folks, they have four guys from, y'all didn't even know each other. No. You don't know anybody in town. And in the matter of two years, you're not teaching a few kids rugby and spending time with them. You create a league. Yeah. In a city, you know, nobody
0: and and I want to emphasize that you know cuz this is one thing I'm really proud of and I will always I will always bang the table emphasizing this cuz you you said it but I, I like Brad Andre I, yeah we didn't know anybody but none of us come from a super you know crazy you know e- economic background, either. background so they were no, cuz a lot of people saw us saw us really take off this was this was pretty successful from the start you know we had a lot of challenges this was extremely difficult but from the outside facing in if you looked at our marketing if you look at our social media we were successful early, and then we had these teams, and we were scaling, and then in 2015, we started girls rugby, and I think some folks, even friends that I have from back home, thought that there was some shortcut, that there was some somebody's uncle cut the check or some some big institution bailed us out. There was no shortcuts. We were going broke, paying out of our own teacher salary pockets, and Bill, I'm sure you're familiar with that, you know, when you when you were coaching Manassas to fill gaps, to have needs, our crowdfunding campaign to raise 2000 bucks just to get a bus to go to Murfreesboro to play a game. Cause we qualify for state like all this stuff. So no shortcuts. You're exactly right. No access. So 11 years later with, with some foundations locally funding us and different levels of support and the city embracing us, we are thankful for that and very proud that there was no foundation to start. You know,
1: the point is it was passion, discipline, and dedication. Yeah. Not, money organization and help
0: and and really special young men and women who embraced us and and were courageous enough to try something new. And and they they are the trailblazers and pioneers who paved the way for now thousands of others.
1: So I'm going to, I'm going to repeat some quotes and then we're going to go into uh, the girls. Rugby just kills me. And I want you to tell the story of the first black rugby scholarship recipient, which I think is freaking phenomenal. That doesn't happen without what you've done. But I'm going to interject a few of these for the remainder of time we talk. Uh, a player. Memphis is top five in poverty, top five in crime, things that could be re- prevented if kids had a place to go and people that loved them. He's not talking about a rugby ball. He's talking about love them. rugby can take kids off the street. I'm a witness because, listen, I'm not the richest guy in the world. I've had to work everything I have, rake yards, carry my lawnmower around. Rugby taught me that you've got to be your own man. I didn't have a dad, and I was being raised by my grandmother. She was working, and so I was in the bad crowd. I did a lot that I regret. I vandalized houses. I beat up people, gang affiliation. But rugby changed all that. What, what does that make you feel when you hear that? That's a life changer, bro.
0: Yeah. Um, it's amazing because, you know, I, I know who that quotes from, you know, and that's. Do you and, share it? Yeah. So that's that's Calvin Gentry, who w- was uh, on the first team that I coached. So when he was 14 years old as a freshman at Power Center Academy, he came out to play and you know i talked about the kingsbury group we didn't have a lot of explosive athletes that came out in the first group
1: calvin gentry was one huh
0: calvin ended up playing pro rugby later in life and and he got recruited to play at a top five rugby school in the country he's he's one of the most explosive athletes i've ever met in my life i knew that from the start when he came out but um he was also that he, he is um so special to me in the organization because i think without calvin there there's the memphis inner rugby is totally different because he 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 challenged us in so many ways like when you talk about the services we provide now transportation nutrition academic support mental health counseling opportunities to you know get recruited we're we're doing our own combine we're we're doing everything we possibly can to give our kids access support love but also a trajectory and an up, and an opportunity for upward mobility within oh, the sport. And I, you mean
1: it. it's really not about rugby?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm. I oh, like newsflash! But but falling backwards into those services was a lot uh, of Calvin, like the special kid, so talented and and such a big heart and and you know never who
1: readily had- admits he was a gang member. Yeah, and, he vandalized and- houses. He beat people up.
0: And, and, he, and he was always getting kicked out of class and teachers had a really hard time with Calvin and he was just such a ball of energy. So rugby really helped him as an outlet, but he also always needed a ride home. There were so many resources that he lacked. And so what we were trying to provide was a really great combination of things to, to help a person like Calvin who, who was difficult to help because of the resources he lacked and the challenges he faced. And so it was like, it makes me feel proud because, and thankful and thankful because Calvin did not receive the world-class alumni support program that we now have codified, vetted in in a budget that you know is prepared and it's designed and it is amazing and and we don't we didn't have that for Calvin. We were just doing everything we could. And now because of what Calvin went through and the sort of cross he bared, now kids get that because Calvin. You know you're reading a quote from a film that was made um, very much about him, and that film helped Memphis Inner City raise money to then start girls teams and to then offer a scholarship and then to then, you know, conceive a world-class alumni support program, most of which he missed out on because he was already off to college. He was already off to his career. He's now a teacher and um, he's so, he's so special to me. So I could go on all day about Calvin, but uh, well,
1: now you busted the bubble. So you might as well tell us about the
0: film. Well, so I think, I think the one you read is from a YouTube. Uh, it's a film called the rugby boys of Memphis. And if you go on Memphis center city rugby's YouTube channel, it's like 17 minutes long. And it tells a story of like our boys team journey to the 2014 state championships. And Calvin was like a leader of that team. But then in 2016, some bigger, bigger, pe- honestly, that documentary, is something like I directed because I wanted to, I just wanted, I thought this team You're making so- a
1: video yearbook as much as anything. Well,
0: but it really started. I remember going home for Thanksgiving, being in Florida, my team had already qualified for state and they were playing so good. And I thought it was such a special thing. I was like, I got to get someone just to film the games so that these kids can get, get recruited for college and me trying to find someone to recruit the games with no money and no resources turned into this guy saying, why don't I just film y'all for the whole weekend? And that became that film called the rugby boys of Memphis. And then later on, because of the notoriety of that story, our marketing, our social media, a guy named David Darg called me who was like a Emmy or Grammy, which one's not music. (laughs) Um, <laughs> it's it's, a, it's a
1: Emmy Grammys music, <laughs> Emmys TV and so, and movies.
0: So sorry, David, if you're listening, but David Darg, <laughs> Emmy award winning filmmaker, uh, humanitarian. I mean, this guy is a legend. You look him up. He's done some incredible things. But he called me. He said, "I saw this. You know, I had I, I grew up in England. I you know played rugby, and I saw this, this is a really special story. Can we can we talk about making a film that became the, a film that is is available on Amazon Prime? I don't know if it's live on there anymore, but it was 2016, and it's, it, is. it centers around Calvin. And so and I'm what's in it that called? Too. Okay, so I got I got this wrong. That's called the Rugby Boys of Memphis. Right, the one on YouTube is called the Power of Rugby. So yes. sorry. So and the
1: Rugby Boys of Memphis, I think, was even like sponsored by
0: Gatorade or something. Yeah, Gatorade like kind of funded it, and uh, yeah, got behind it.
1: Okay, so let's recap. Yeah, first year, a bunch of kids at Kingsbury who don't know what's going on. Second year, Power Academy, and five years later, you got Emmy award-winning movie makers. Telling your story, Mm -hmm. all because four guys from different points of the world, who were with Teach for America, with teacher salaries, decide to
0: invest. Yeah, lean in and uh, not sleep a lot.
1: And that concludes part one of my conversation with Shane Young. And part two is now available, and I promise you, you won't want to miss it. But If for some reason you do, make sure you join the Army of Normal Folks at normalfolks.us and sign up to become a member of our movement. By signing up, you'll also receive a weekly email with short episode summaries in case you happen to miss an episode, or you may prefer reading about our incredible guests. Together, guys, we can change the country. And it starts with you. I'll see you in part two.